Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon, uh, everyone. Um, I would like to get underway because we do have a slight time constraint, and I've been asked to end about five or ten minutes early because, as was mentioned earlier this morning, the building closes at five, and if we overstay our visit, we will all be escorted out by a uniformed but polite uh, individuals. So uh, first I'll introduce myself. I'm Ira Nadell from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. It's a great privilege to participate in this conference and to learn firsthand so many of the challenges and um, operations, really in a literal sense of the word, of uh, a whole range of biographical dictionaries. I want to assure everyone, first of all, that this is not, I'll repeat, this is not the Wikipedia session. Right. Just <laughs> want to be absolutely clear about that. Okay. Um, this is, however, uh, a session which is going to focus on the revision of dictionaries. And I'm also pleased to say that this is a transnational section. Uh, because we have, as our three presenters, Professor Susan Ware, who represents the American National Biography, uh, Turlo O'Rourden, who will speak about the Dictionary of Irish Biography, and finally, Professor Elizabeth Ewan, who will comment on questions of, pardon me, uh, revision relating to the Scottish women uh, dictionary. So you can see how broad and transnational uh, we have come, even though it's four o'clock in the afternoon uh, on the first day of the conference. I'm not going to take the time to uh, provide extensive introductions to the three speakers. They're all um, represented in the program. Uh, I'd like to follow the order as uh, presented on the program uh, as it stands with first Professor Susan Ware, then uh, Turlo O'Rourden, and then Professor Elizabeth Ian. We will have time for debate, declarations, manifestos, if anyone would like to make one, uh, at the conclusion of the three presentations. I'd like to invite Susan to come up. Thank you. Well, thanks to you all for staying around, and, and thanks to Melanie and everyone involved in this conference. Uh, it brought me to Australia, uh, and I'm having a very interesting and enjoyable time. So uh, thanks again for that. Uh, the title of my paper is slightly expanded from what's up there, and let me give it to you because it might make, make a little more sense for what, I'm gonna, what you'll be hearing. Why Gender Matters, Fostering Diversity in the American National Biography with Lessons Learned from Notable American Women. So, so when I applied for the position of General Editor of American National Biography in 2012, one of the things I did in preparation for my interview was to, investi in, to investigate the coverage of women in the biographical dictionary. And I asked the reference librarians at the Schlesinger Library on History of Women in America at Radcliffe, which is my 
local library in my institutional home, what they thought the percentage would be. And they guessed somewhere between one quarter and one third, which was about what I expected to find in a reference work that had been published in 1999. Uh, imagine my surprise when I discovered that fewer than 18% of the entries were of women, which I now know is actually higher than some of the other dictionaries represented. But there's another issue here that it sort of goes along with this. I later discovered that women were dramatically discriminated against in terms of the length of the essays. Only five women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Martha Graham, Eudora Welty, Margaret Mead, and Florence Kelly, rated longer essays than, get this, the Three Stooges. So as a feminist biographer, I knew I had my work cut out for me. And it's not just the A and B that shows we are still far from anything approaching gender parity when it comes to biography. One only needs to look at Wikipedia, which is notorious for its underrepresentation of women, both as subjects and as contributors, or the New York Times Book Review, where women, both as authors and subjects, struggle to get attention. Examples like these confirm that any notions that women will be seamlessly integrated into the larger biographical project are patently false. In a mantra that I will repeat several times in this paper, if editors and gatekeepers don't pay attention when pay close attention when choosing subjects, the situation defaults back to privileging dead white males. Worthy women are out there, they just take a little more effort and research to track down. And my second key point, this insight applies to any non-dominant social group. If American women's contributions have been missed or undervalued, it is likely that so too have African Americans, Latinos, gay people, to say nothing of new categories like trans individuals who weren't even on the biographical radar until recently. Making biographical reference works truly representative of the nations they purport to describe therefore takes a strong commitment to moving beyond, this is a quote from Casablanca, the movie from the 1940s, rounding up the usual suspects. But it's not enough just to add women. Gender must be deployed intersectionally in ways that embrace, embrace other factors and characteristics such as race, class, religion, sexual identity, age, geographical location, and occupation, among others. The treatment of women in biographical dictionaries, therefore, is often the canary in the mine shaft of how well the reference world is dealing with broader questions of diversity. Now, by training, I'm a women's historian and feminist biographer, and that background has profoundly influenced how I approach my duties as a general editor of American National Biography. And nothing gave me better preparation for taking over the ANB than my long association with a now-defunct biographical dictionary called Notable American Women. The idea for a biographical dictionary specifically devoted to women dates to 1956, when Harvard professor Arthur Schlesinger Sr., noting the general absence of women from standard biographical reference works, and indeed women's near invisibility in the field of history, broached the idea. Uh, case in point, the Dictionary of American Biography, which was the predecessor of the A and B I now had, 
contained more than 15,000 essays, but a mere 709 covered women. Radcliffe College agreed to sponsor the project, and the distinctive name of Notable American Women was chosen. The initial expectation was that it would take five years. Fifteen years later, I'm sure that gap resonates with anyone involved in these projects, the publication of the first three volumes of Notable American Women in 1971 was quite a big deal. The 1,359 entries demonstrated a range of women's activities over the course of American history from 1607 to 1950. But I should add that that starting date of 1607 is something that would be done differently today. We wouldn't start with the arrival of white folks on the North American continent, an observation that I'm sure resonates uh, with the editors of other National Biographical projects. The volumes received major reviews in mainstream publications like the New York Times Book Review. Put simply, that so many women had contributed so much to American history was big news. The original volumes ended with subjects who died in 1950, which meant that the 20th century was barely represented. represented. So in 1975, Radcliffe College announced it would sponsor an additional volume to cover women who died between 1950 and 1975. And like the publication of the original volumes, the publication of volume four in 1980 garnered quite a lot of media attention. Uh, like the original volumes, this one introduced into the historical record the contributions of women who were not always as well known as Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, who of course was included. And in this way, a biographical dictionary can serve to spark further research, which is an extremely valuable contribution and one of the reasons why I so much enjoy working in this field. When Barbara Sisherman finished her tenure as editor of volume four, she did not anticipate that there would be future volumes, but I always held out hope that the project would continue and I personally took the lead. Once again, we secured the support of Radcliffe College, although with the expectation that we would have to win significant outside funding. It took us four tries, but in 2000, we finally won a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Notable American women completing the 20th century appeared in 2004. Now the publication of this final installment occurred just before the tipping point to digital and online sources was reached. If we had begun just three or four years later, we would have included an online equivalent or perhaps dispensed with print altogether and gone straight to electronic. Who knew how, thing, how quickly things would change? And I think we need to remind ourselves of that. At the same time, I stand by the point I made in our application to the NEH. It doesn't matter whether the final format is print or online, the most important thing is the meticulous scholarship that informs the project. But unlike the, public, uh, the attention that greeted the first four volumes, the publication of the fifth volume was greeted with a giant yawn. I don't mean to imply that the vol volumes were not valued by the profession, but by 2004, the idea of a biographical dictionary on women no longer represented the radical inter intervention it had been in 1971 or 1980. 
So does that mean that specialized biographical dictionaries are no longer necessary? Well, if women's history and women's contributions were truly integrated into the wider world of scholarship, then perhaps the answer might be in the, in the affirmative. But plenty of evidence points in the other direction, as my experience in taking over the ANB shows. Now, the era in which the American National Biography was conceived and implemented, which is the 1980s and 1990s, when, like the DNB, it was decided that it needed to start over and redo the old Dictionary of National Biography. I think that era is highly relevant here. This is not the 1950s when the editors of Notable were basically building women's history from scratch for their volume. By the time the ANB was underway, the field of women's history was reasonably well established and had produced a strong outpouring of scholarship. Still, I was blindsided by how low the representation of women was when I took over. Now that I have served as ed general editor for several years, I can see how this happened. If editors aren't paying explicit attention to gender and other markers of diversity, the tendency is to revert to dead white men. Why? They still dominate the New York Times obituaries, which is one of our ma main sources, by a dramatic margin. They often have received the popular recognition in their fields. They win prizes and honors that make them visible and prominent. And they are generally easier to find authors to write the essays for in the first place. The women are out there. You just have to look harder and deeper for them. And that takes time, energy, and endless networking. And editors haven't always had the time or the inclination to make that extra effort. So the struggle continues. Now, it's probably too strong to say everything I know about editing I learned at Notable. But as my assistant editor, Rob Heinrich, would attest, and oh, he was so excited to know that he was going to get a shout out uh, since he wasn't able to come along on this trip. I do pre preface many a sentence when I'm talking with him with the phrase, at Notable, we did it this way. And most of the lessons I learned centered around the challenge of diversifying the content, which, of course, is key to the idea of revising. Here's lesson number one. Diversity is hard work. It takes time and involves constant juggling. Since Notable was, concern, com was composed only of women, the gender question was already settled, although I suppose now we might actually have some inter interesting discussions about how exactly to define a woman. Uh, our main diversity struggle was over race, and I'm proud that in the volume I edited, one quarter of the biographies were devoted to the lives and contributions of non-white women. We also struggled with questions of regional diversity uh, and tried to do as well as we could. Lesson number two, to paraphrase the character Blanche Dubois in Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, we learned to depend on the kindness of strangers. And I've heard many references to volunteers, and I, I think this is, this is very much to that point. I continue to be amazed at the professional generosity of so many of the folks we reached out to for advice or suggestions, not just scholars, but also librarians, archivists, members of professional groups, and even fan clubs. These experts had a vested interest in increasing professional recognition of their field, 
but just as often they helped simply because we asked. Lesson number three, cultivate a smaller core of consultants and advisory editors for individual fields. Let them have the final say on where to draw the line between who to include and who not to include, which is actually a surprisingly tricky call and one where it is crucial to be consistent across all fields. A second-tier actress who doesn't make the cut should be roughly equal to a second-tier engineer or playwright who is left out. Lesson number four. Secure your funding and make sure your project has a strong institutional base that guarantees its long-term viability. In this respect, I failed. Radcliffe was home to the project for all three of its um, iterations, but it was never an especially close fit, nor was the Schlesinger Library able to provide an independent institutional home, and the Harvard University Press never envisioned a role in the scholarly reference world uh, at all comparable to the one that Oxford University Press has sustained over the years. Lacking an ongoing institutional base meant that each volume of Notable basically started over from scratch, whereas a far better model would have been an ongoing operation with consistency of staff and procedures and updating done on a regular basis. And this is, in fact, the most salient lesson. If you don't have the ability to continually update and expand your coverage, any biographical reference work will gradually lose its usefulness. And frankly, one of the main reasons I agreed to take the position as general editor of the ANB was so that I could make sure my women, which is how I think of them, uh, who had died since our cutoff date of two th in 2000, would actually be included in a major national biographical project. Now, many of these lessons are directly transferable to my task of increasing the diversity of the A and B. But there are also some major differences, uh, and the biggest, of course, is that of scale. Just under 2,300 women are included in Notable American Women. The volume I edited contained 483 entries. That small scale gave us the ability to literally keep a map of the entire volume on a bulletin board in our office, which now resides on the third floor of my house, the gold stars we affixed when entries were submitted slowly dropping off. Um, but harking back to what I said about our being on the cusp of between print and online, we knew that we were limited to no more than 500 entries in order to fit in one bound volume, plus we didn't have the editorial staff to do any more than that. As I have found out, the A and B is a completely different ballgame. There is no way I could have a mental or physical map of 19,000 subjects in my head. The breadth of coverage literally boggles the mind. While there were certainly constraints concerning length of the original print volumes, those constraints lessened when the publication moved online. And one of the greatest advantages of online publishing is that you don't have to be quite so strict about word counts. Plus, we can add or revise entries anytime. Unlike Notable, which truly was a zero-sum game, if we added an extra social worker, 
we probably had to take out an actress or writer. We can be more capacious in our commissioning as long as we don't commission so many entries that they overwhelm our editorial office, which is <laughs> basically me and Rob, um, or our ability to pay the honorarium from our royalties. This new publishing landscape should, in theory, make it easier to deal with questions of diversity. If we find someone from an underrepresented group, we can just pop the person in. But unfortunately, it is often even easier to add, to add an entry about some male politician who got a prominent obituary in the New York Times. The question of scale also means that it is very difficult to change the overall numbers in categories such as race or gender. We could probably add only ent entries on women for the next 10 or 15 or possibly 50 years, and we would barely make a dent in the overall percentage. But that doesn't mean we can't try to redress the imbalance to the best of our ability. And as I've been saying all along, recognizing that gender matters is just one of many considerations that should always be front and center when overseeing such a large project as the ANB. And the items on the agenda will continue to shift and grow. Our masthead proudly proclaims, the life of a nation is told by the lives of its people. And I take that responsibility very seriously. As general editor, it is up to me to provide the intellectual leadership to make sure that our entries do in fact mirror the face of an ever-changing American nation, male, female, and in all its rainbow of diversity. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I'd now like to ask uh, Turlo to come up. Thank you. Thank you, Ira, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. My thanks to Professor Melanie Nolan and her colleagues in the NCBADB, and especially Scott and Christine, who um, really put up a lot of my questions and will probably put up with a few more, but I just wanted to thank them for taking the time to talk to me, and also to, it's great to be here today. I would like to briefly address two themes. Um, firstly, editorial selection, questions of Irishness, and the transnational in the dictionary of Irish biography and then bring that on to the concept of revision in the DIB project, especially in the six years since uh, our initial publication. And in doing so, I'm just offering personal observations reg regarding the evolution of the, the DIB, as we call it, or I call it. Um, this will require a brief historical sketch of the Dictionary of the Irish Biography. So for those who, I suspect most of you don't know too much about it, planning and scoping work began in the mid-1980s, trawling of sources, consulting widely amongst domain experts, identifying a pool of figures to be considered for inclusion. The publishing format and schedule remained somewhat nebulous. Initially temporarily conceived, external experts and contributors would research lives uh, for specifically defined periods to be collected and periodically published. Planning was orientated towards developing a database, which was quite open-minded in the 80s, which would be published on CD-ROM, then the state of the art. Decisions regarding the form and schedule of publication gradually solidified which m with much academic bureaucratic uh, rancor in the Royal Irish Academy towards the adoption of a dual hard copy and online publication mandate. Principally, everything changed with the commitment of serious government funding in 1997, and that led to the signing of a publishing contract with Cambridge University Press. This really was uh, transformative. It facilitated an enlarged in-house research and writing program staffed by specialist scholars and the adoption of a unified publishing timetable with all entries to be researched and written en masse. 
before publication. So in 2003, our second transformative moment was Cambridge rightly urged us to publish the dictionary simultaneously in both hard copy and online. It hadn't been anticipated to do that at the time, and at that point, 70% roughly of entries had been written. Um, it was a good thing, looking back, because it forced us to go back and begin to look at the entries that had been written possibly 10 years ago at that point, and begin thinking about revision in terms of content and scope of before we'd even published for the first time, if you know what I mean. Final copy editing, editing proofing, page proofing, uh, was approved in spring of 2009, and then we were published in, 2000, in November of that year. Comprising over 8 million words, spread over 10,000 pages in nine volumes. Kind of small by some of you guys, but we were pretty proud of it. Um, at that point, the dictionary was mirrored identically in the online and in the hard copy format. Um, however, there has been a gradual divergence of content between those formats since then, and I think this illustrates a range of tensions that are uh, going to try and draw upon. Turning back to the idea of inclusion and Irishness, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm a, I'm a historian to a degree and a political scientist and a, a bit of a computer scientist. Nations, whether deliberately arbitrary constructs or naturally occurring phenomena, what for Ernest Gellner, the great LSE sociologist, suggested was whether they had navels or not, remains one of the most fascinating issues in political science, and it infuses how we organize our dictionaries. Membership of a nation, whether, wherever the origins lie, emanates from notions of origin or birth, belonging or participation, residence or entitlement, perhaps even service and loyalty. Formalized bureaucratically in terms of citizenship, for biographical dictionaries, cast iron rubrics remain problematic. In that light, the editors of the DIB, specifically the two joint editors, James McGuire and James Quinn, settled on three selection criteria. Those born on the island of Ireland, with significant careers there or overseas, and those born overseas with careers in Ireland. Thus, Gladstone is excluded, the Duke of Wellington included, and joined by Handel due to his personally debuting his Messiah in Dublin. Um, the editors, and I quote, emphasized primacy of achievement over position and the eschewed hard and fast rules, selecting, and I quote again, those names which seem most likely to be the objects of inquiry in the 21st century wisely noting at the margins there is considerable scope for disagreement. So in the dictionary, it's published mythical figures such as Deirdre of the Sorrows, Finn McCool, um, from ancient mythology, sit alongside the more recent Molly Malone, who's a figurative Dublin street hawker uh, and the subject of a famous song from the terraces of Lansdowne Road. They coexist with saints, for example, Finbar of Cork and obviously St. Patrick, and medieval lodestars such as Gerald of Wales, the author of the Typographia Hibernia. Arkell, the famous horse, could not be included for obvious reasons, though his owner, Anne, Duchess of Westminster, is given extensive treatment, subtly addressing the Duke of Wellington's observation regarding his own origins and national classification. Um, questions of Irishness, like any national nationality, remain contested. I think it's obvious to me why we don't even have the word national in our title. Um, it's the Dictionary of Irish Biography, and we're based as an all-island project, we include everyone born or involved in the island of Ireland. That solves a lot of problems, but there, some remain. Um, we must not fall into the trap of betraying notions of Irishness as zero-sum or mutually exclusive. I myself, on visiting MoMA in New York a few years ago, was struck how they described Francis Bacon, and I think they drew this from the Getty Artist Ontology, which is a structured format. They described Francis Bacon as British, born Ireland, 1909. Absolutely correct. And they went on to explicitly describe his nationality as British, Irish, and it, sorry, British, English, and Irish in that order. And again, absolutely correct, in the sense of that, that is who, probably how he would define himself. And I think it's fair to say that such mixtures, if not always such se sequencing, 
are not unusual for, born, for those born after 1066 on the islands in question. Um, definite assignations and attributions are never value neutral beyond perhaps assignations of dates and geographic coordinates of a person's place of birth and death. And I've met critical theorists who would say that the space-time continuum is problematic in that regard. So you really can't get everything right. Place names are problematic in Ireland, as elsewhere. Indeed, the BBC used the construction Derry, Londonderry, to refer to that city and county, uh, pre precisely because the issue remains intractable. I have wondered about the uses of the term in the name of the local rugby club, which is called City of Derry, RFC, who compete in the All-Ireland National League, a deeply loyalist and unionist entity I'm told their usage emanates from a period early in the 20th century when the club was founded uh, and the term was Derry was, was basically unproblematic for that community at the time. Tradition has demanded they retain it. Um, the history of these isles, the, uh, the isles that we share, uh, the edge of Europe, uh, ever in flux as Brexit sadly reminds us, have had their benefits um, for our own project in that we have been largely protected by the Royal Irish Academy due to its odd distinction of predating the state and apparently those in the know remind me that it would require to change its structure, uh, an act of both Westminster and the Irish Parliament um, to, be, to be put in place, which will be very difficult going forward. So in that sense, we've had this weird constitutional protection in so many ways that allows us to get on with so much of what we do. Um, there are obviously many, many overlaps between those treated in the DIB and the Oxford DMB. This, of course, is the case across and between many such dictionaries um, here today. And I, you know, I, I've often wondered about this. Mozart appears in the Swiss Historical Dictionary, the Aust Austrian Musical Lexicon, the New German Biography. Captain James Cook, as Karen Fox rightly pointed out to me, can be found in the Oxford DMB, the ADB, Teara, um, and perhaps also Susan may be able to confirm the American National Biography because he died in Hawaii. These are just two prominent examples. Um, I could go on. Turning to the kind of revision of scope and content, and I'm just talking very general terms, a long time, alongside rectifying glaring errors of fact and interpretation, which I think we'll all agree is integral to the revision of any academic reference work, we have addressed corrigenda. Unsolicited submissions from interested parties and useful knowledge, sorry, with useful knowledge, such as family members, friends, or colleagues, of those in the DIB, as well as from domain experts and, general, and the general public, have guided a substantial portion of the hundreds of revisions we have undertaken in the last six years. Such work is incredibly time-consuming as suggestions and submissions cannot be accepted at face value, the requisite research and verification generates a tendency to review the full entry under consideration. And as you unpick in service of reassessment, you look at new sources, you kind of examine existing findings, are they still viable? You, know, you can go on and on. A substantial proportion of the DIB could very easily be subject to such review at any given point under such circumstances. And I think here, resource restraints for once induce a positive influence. The growing abundance of information that various presenters have talked about today and I think is key to all of what we do. However, that however that variably generates knowledge, or perhaps undermines it, increases the value, importance and utility of reference works. I passionately believe that, but I'm aware I'm full of my own biases. Their integrity, based on accuracy and robust, considered editorial decisions and practices, remain ever important, especially if a sense of completeness is to be kind of maintained. So, issues of sensitivity arise increasingly frequently with supplementary lives added to the DIB. They're the more recent lives. We have a rolling six-year window at a minimum, especially regarding those dying in contentious or tragic circumstances or enduring or being involved in traumatic events. And here, terrorism, vaccine, child, vaccine trials, child sex abuse are sadly not exclusive to the Irish historical experience. Contextualizing such occurrences in in terms of narrative and factual accuracy, as well as ensuring that, that legal necessities are adequately addressed, 
consumes viable word count and editorial resources. To illustrate, John, the murder or death or disappearance of Jean McConville is a live issue at the moment in Ireland. It's linked to the Boston College papers, which are being sought by the FBI on behalf of the UK. Um, Brendan Hughes, who, who gave testimony about her disappearance, is also in the dictionary. Um, his relationship with Jerry Adams is contested. You know, th th these are just incredibly live. Another example would be the tribunals of um, inquiry in Ireland from the 90s and 2000s. They looked at planning corruption and various allied interests. They have been undermined legally in terms of the jurisprudence, quite rightly or wrongly, I'm not sure, recently. And we have relied upon them for various findings of fact, and they have to be managed very closely and then taken out. And, you know, you can tie yourself up in knots on this. Turning to new lives and missing persons. Since 2009, we've added two batches of, of, the, of missing persons. One such figure is Heinrich Ball, the German uh, Nobel laureate, whose 1957 Irish journal remains highly influential and is a consistent presence in bookshops in Ireland and Germany. Our DIB entry on him notes how he was influenced by Swift, Brendan Bean, Francis Stewart, um, and he, he himself translated the works of Bernard Shaw, Millington Singh, and Flann O'Brien into German. So other figures like this we brought in from the coal range from business people, sporting and artistic figures, artists, politicians, clergy, to name just a few. Much of this has been driven by recent historiographical uh, reassessment and historical research, although a few figures have emerged from our own specialist pet interests, one of whom, or many of whom I find that I've been able to finally research and do justice to because of digitized resources. Um, since 2010, we've added new lives to the DIB biannually, every fourth supplement comprising the aforementioned missing persons. So we do updates in December and uh, June of each year. The rolling six-year window means that by the end um, of this year, we're going to have dealt with people dying up to 2010, and together they and the missing persons will be collected into our first supplemental hard copy volume. Um, that will bring the total lives that we're adding to about 600, and for the first time, we've been conceived as dual hard copy and online, but we're going to dive back into hard copy, questions of word count that we allowed to sort of expand outwards when we went online. I can think of George Best, who's a fantastic entry, a soccer player of some renown. He's going to have to be shortened. Some of my own entries are going to have to shorten. These, these are interesting tensions. Um, I was very sad not to meet Philip Carter. I've read many of his uh, works, and uh, it's just a pity he wasn't here today. But in, in 2003, he described the inc incredible feat of putting the ODMB online, and noted that the digitization of the ODMB made it both a subject for drawing on and from online resources and an object itself being used and published online of digitization. And over the last decade or so, later biographical dictionaries are still, sorry, other biographical dictionaries are all still grappling in various ways with the digital nature of scholarly research, practice, and publishing. What Laura Putnam called the digital turn a short time ago in a fascinating account in the American Historical Review that was actually largely driven by an opinion piece about transnational history. So the growing ubiquity of the search box has led to manifold changes in our practices, both in researching and writing lives and also how we present our content to users. We no longer just publish volumes, but have become digital platforms and move between the two. In that area, you know, algorithms aren't neutral, metadata is problematic, and there's a whole load of areas there that we can go into, and we just don't have time. Um, I'm always fascinated. The DRB is still, for the most part, by my colleagues, by our home institution, by our publisher, it's conceived of as a hard copy publication. And there's a noticeable tendency for those citing the DIB to reference the hard copy 2009 edition, even when they've often relied on the online version. This can be especially jarring when a sub supplemental life, when so referenced, has only been published online. Um, reassuringly, the DIB has been drawn upon extensively, especially in the deluge of recent works treating the Irish decade of centenaries, roughly 1912 to 22. 
An unscientific survey of these works sees the DIB often cited en masse when it's clear a small number of specific entries have been used, often easily identifiable by means exclusive to the DIB entries being reproduced in the text of various works, often unattributed. However, whether such obfuscation is deliberate is immaterial. It positively demonstrates the centrality of the DIB to current humanities research and historiographical practice. In the UK, JISC, which I think is sadly no longer in existence, undertook a sequence of surveys until 2010 assessing how resources produced by British History Online were referenced. And one of their findings was a, was a, was a clear bias towards academics encouraging their students uh, to cite hard copy sources when they were clearly using the online. And the report also discussed the absence of agreed citation standards for historical publications, which remains a, a major issue. Moving aside from these citations, the unspoken duality um, and the tensions between static hard copy and iterative online is conditioning our own practice and the practice of our users. Um, and indeed, the increasing preponderance of digital editions in the humanities research and general reference publishing from the close of the 1990s has seen so many changes that I, I, you could write books about them, and people do. But in, in terms of how our workflows um, are undertaken, they are largely unchanged after two decades in the DIB. Um, working towards volume 10, which our supplementary volume will be titled, I find it fascinating. I deal with our colleagues in Cambridge, both in the humanities section and the digital production section. They don't even know each other personally and professionally. I have to introduce them, and we're going to go through a dual wor workflow again 10 years later in the same way. Um, so those who write and edit the lives that populate our dictionaries no doubt rely on digital tools, newspapers, federated collections, public papers, governmental records, civil records, genealogical resources. And they, these are all databases um, and all instantaneously searchable. So thus name and keyword searching conditions our practice in both research and publication. An article cannot be found or retrieved with faulty metadata. The greater the distance from the present of a life treated in the DIB, the greater the likelihood we cannot furnish full metadata um, regarding parentage, genealogy, place and dates of birth and death. And this absence really jars in a technical sense, but is unavoidable. The diverse range of people treated in the DIB from the earliest times, and indeed from ancient times to 2010, sees the integration of over 2,000 years of Irish history with the requirements of the information age. The only people with the best metadata, you can see some of them across the river or across the lake, it's the five eyes. The intelligence community have perfect metadata. Snowden has shown us. I doubt they're ever going to share, but hopefully one day they'll put it into the library for us. This integration remains ongoing and has pr proved highly challenging, yet incredibly rewarding. And my own work in the DIB in terms of production and online has fueled my research into issues surrounding name forms, their linguistics and onomastics, and um, identity disambiguation. In for, uh, um, to serve our users, we often think of the rarely cited species, the general reader, and make assumptions about how they might find and use our sources. And we recently included the famous actor. I made an effort to think about how we might reference him, and I, I actually made sure that we could search him by his most famous role in a long-running Irish soap. And I will bet good money that when, when the analytics turn up in a few months, the vast majority of searches will be for him under that name. And that's, you know, it's an interesting way of thinking about it in terms of how we engage with the public. Um, Final point, in searching digitally, we forgo the serendipity of browsing, which is a wonderful phrase Jeremy Paxman used when he reviewed the ODNB and The Guardian. And recently, I found lives for inclusion in the DIB, especially transnational lives, through that very process. Browsing through journals, obituaries, things like that, and finding incredibly interesting scientists and medics, especially, who left Ireland, went overseas, and fall through the gaps. But only through that serendipity of browsing, the hard copy, have we found them and thought, sought to include them. Uh, finally, just if I may get another minute, Recently, we published uh, in October 2015 
1916 Portrait and Lies, which is a collection of 40 lives from the DIB, sorry, 42 lives from the DIB, dealing with the Easter Rising of 1916, accompanied by images and portraits and also a fantastic introduction. It's been a great success. We weren't sure if it would, um, leading to a load of collaborations with cultural and public institutions. Um, and it probably presages a future in that regard. Print volumes, they're, they're going to exist. We've sold 5,000 copies of this book, and we gave away 75,000 e-book versions that were downloaded to 50 countries. Um, those numbers are great for us in Ireland. And in a way, it's just classically, people in the online world think in this way, repurposing existing content, however that is done. Anyway, sorry I've run out of time, and uh, I hope that was of some use. Our uh, final presenter this afternoon is Elizabeth Ewan to talk about the Scottish Dictionary. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank uh, the ADB very much for the invitation to come to this conference. Um, as you will see, my project is a little bit different from some of the other uh, national dictionaries. I also wanted to uh, thank them for putting me on this particular day because not only is July the 1st the Battle of the Somme, but it's also Canada Day. As you can tell from my accent, that's where I come from. And I just found out also that it is Australasian Tartan Day. So <laughs> for a Canadian editor of a Scottish dictionary, this seemed highly appropriate. Um, now, when, when Melanie first approached me about this conference early last year, uh, my co-editors and I were just beginning to have tentative, very tentative, uh, discussions about a second edition of the Biographical Dictionary of Scottish Women, which first appeared in print version in 2006. Uh, for the first edition, we had actually proposed that it be online, uh, but the publisher was not keen on this, and in fact, we ended up losing out on a number of funding uh, opportunities because they felt that it should be online. However, we thought surely the press would be interested in an online version this time, so I happily agreed to give a talk on taking the dictionary online. However, when the press decided to commission a second edition late in 2015, it was for a print version only. So again, <laughs> I'm a little different from the other ones because we are, will still be print, although it does exist in an ebook, um, which is actually available at ANU, um, but it's only accessible to staff and students, unfortunately. Now, um, there's a number of reasons for that, and given that we've already talked about some of the funding agencies and we have shortness of time, I'm, I'm not really going to go into that. Um, but university presses are under pressure to produce profits, and uh, having especially an open access online dictionary will not do that in and of itself. Of course, there's also expectations that an online dictionary will be updated on a regular basis, and there are costs and human resources associated with that, and I think we'll talk more about that later. Uh, in our case, we've got the additional issue that our dictionary is not truly national in the traditional sense, as it only covers just over 50% of the population. I'll say more about that later. So uh, this talk is actually about revising the first edition and while not going online, and we decided, by the way, not to use PowerPoint, so um, just to... Uh, show the non-online version of this. This is my uh, study aid. So this is what the book looks like. <laughs> um, a bit of background on the project. Women's history and gender history as fields have a very late start in Scotland compared to those 
in many other countries. They really only developed in the 1990s. Um, to some extent, Scottish women have actually been doubly marginalized because they're largely ignored in Scottish history because of their sex, and they're largely ignored in British history uh, because of their nationality. A lot of works on British history, although this is starting to change, are concerned primarily with English history, but, and England is the largest part of the British Isles, but it means that there's very little attention paid to uh, the rest of the UK and, and Ireland. Uh, that's starting to change, however, and certainly the ODNB um, has led the way in giving good coverage to Scotland. So in 2001, Women's History Scotland, which is a society promoting women's history, uh, met to discuss ways forward in the new millennium. And biography was in the air because the ODNB project uh, was reaching its final stages. A number of us had contributed to it. And that might be why one of the proposals was for a biographical dictionary. A certain very well-known Scottish historian had recently commented that it wasn't possible to write a history of Scottish women because there were so few sources. And uh, that became a motivating challenge for many of us. We wanted to, to prove him wrong. Um, at the time, I have to admit, I was skeptical that a press would take on such a project, but happily I was proved wrong, and Edinburgh University Press uh, commissioned the dictionary in 2002. I don't know if they realized what they were getting into, uh, they had envisioned a book of about 200 entries with maybe 10 to 20 authors. Uh, but as we received more and more suggestions, uh, we took the decision to go with broad coverage rather than, than long entries. And the final book has about 850 entries. And because we have co-entries and group entries, it covers over 1,000 women. It also involved the work of 270 contributors uh, and ranged from the earliest times to 2004. So it became a much larger project. Uh, I have to say it's one of the best things I've ever been involved in because it was almost entirely volunteer labor, um, but the commitment of the contributors to the project was uh, just in incredible. The entries range from 150 to 800 words, and each has a bibliog short bibliography of sources, and the idea is to encourage further research on that woman or that woman. Now, the dictionary received some funding from the Scottish Government's Equality Unit. Uh, most came from a private trust, which is committed to um, projects in Scottish history and then a number of other small grants. So we produced the dictionary with um, about 25,000 pounds of funding, uh, which was 50,000 Australian dollars last week. I'm not entirely sure uh, what it is right now. Uh, as we were working on the project, of course, we often cast envious eyes on the ODNB, uh, to which some of us, I mentioned, had contributed biographies. I should say, though, that we were very grateful to the ODNB in agreeing that some of the contributors who had written on Scottish women for that dictionary should be free to contribute another shorter biography um, to our dictionary. So at the time of publication, there were about 400 women that are both in the ODNB and in our dictionary. There may be a few more now. The dictionary was well received. It enjoyed considerable media coverage in Scotland. It sold more than um, most books, uh, academic monographs, and reference works from the press. And uh, so it sold well enough that the press has been interested in commissioning a second revised and expanded edition. Publication will be in 2018, uh, a date that we had picked uh, to mark the centenary of the first grant of suffrage to women in the UK, but those of you who've been following Brexit uh, realize that 2018 may have entirely different significance. Uh, we, we'll see what happens. Um, what was particularly rewarding was the number of offshoot projects which actually developed from the dictionary. Uh, the Memorials of Women project records memorials, and that actually is online. Uh, and uh, this 
we started it with the Girl Scouts, and uh, it records women's memorials in, in the localities. Uh, most of these appear as plaques rather than statues. Uh, I just read last week that the number of statues to women in Scotland is currently equal to the number of statues to animals. Uh, but there is actually a horse going to be unveiled this summer, and so the animals have pulled ahead of the women. I think that's going to change. <laughs> Learning and Teaching Scotland commissioned a project to increase the coverage of women in school teaching resources, and the dictionaries provided the information for several public exhibitions. So even though we're not online ourselves, uh, the fruits of our labour are getting into online sources. So what is the second edition to look like? Well, we've been given an extra 60,000 words with which we can correct errors, update original articles where more work is being done, and add new women, including those who died uh, in the years since 2004. And we now refer to deaths of women such as these as, quote, entering the dictionary. We can add 30 new images. Um, our current budget is 1,500 pounds, $3,000, uh, although we will be looking for additional funding. Uh, as we begin work, we find ourselves revisiting some of the main issues that came up in the past and which may resonate with um, other presenters in this session. And in fact, I think I'm going to just jump through some of them. There's a certain irony, just in terms of nationality, that the editors, um, two were born in England, one was born in Wales, and one was in, born in Canada, and only two live and work in Scotland. So the, the issue of transnational identity is something that, that's a very personal one. For us. At least the publisher is fully Scottish, but that's, that's about it. So how do we decide who's Scottish? Well, many dictionaries have been very inclusive, and there's actually precedent for that in Scotland. In uh, 1627, a biographical dictionary included everybody who was identified as Scoti. Now, in the Middle Ages, a Scoti could also be an Irish person. Uh, so I think maybe they, all the early entries in uh, the Dictionary of Irish Biography would be in ours if this person was still alive. Should we include those of Scottish descent? Uh, the ODMB, for example, includes figures such as uh, Nellie McClun, uh, a leader of the suffrage movement in Canada who had an Irish father and a Scottish mother, but she's born and spent her whole life in Canada. So what about those that don't have physical connection with the country? In the end, we took the decision not to include those. We had a huge debate about Mary MacKillop because we really would have liked to have included her, um, but we, just, we had to draw the line somewhere. Um, because we've got the length constraints of a print publication, we're forced to be uh, quite exclusive. So to be included, a woman had to have been born in Scotland, lived in Scotland for an appreciable period, or if she's only there for a short time, to have influenced some aspect of Scottish national life. So being born to Scottish parents, but not in Scotland, was not enough by itself, and hence Mary MacKillop. Um, I noticed this time, actually, that we're being tougher about the time in Scotland aspect. So we were including before some women that were born in Scotland but left fairly soon afterwards. Um, this time, uh, we're not doing that, and that means that there's very little focus on the diaspora, which I regret, but there are other biographical dictionaries out there. Uh, we will be including, however, um, Elizabeth Macquarie. I think that the Biographical Dictionary of Women can raise questions which are of wider interest to nations and biographers. For example, transnational identities is one that's been brought up a lot. What happens to your sense of identity or national identity when you move to a place? And this is particularly, I think, applicable to women, which is not necessarily your choice to move to. 
uh, often women moved because of marriage or in the Middle Ages, early modern period, especially among the elite, um, they moved uh, because they married somebody in Scotland. And uh, these questions are not, of course, just relevant to women. Um, this is a highly relevant question right now with the um, flow of refugees, for example. And so these issues, I think, are really, really coming to the fore. Many of the women that we look at, especially those before the 20th century, either moved to or moved from Scotland because of marriage. It's not really because they wanted to move. But many of them, although not all, made a success in their lives in the new culture, an example that I think is becoming increasingly important in an ever more cosmopolitan society. It would be good to think that one role which biographical dictionaries can play is actually to demonstrate how nations are built up, not only by those whose families have lived there for generations, but also by those who come to that nation and become part of it. And if we're talking about how we want to make biographical dictionaries more um, relevant or popular, I think that's maybe something that we could stress. Of course, this is particularly an issue in Scotland right now because it's just been making the point that it sees itself increasingly as European uh, in contrast to its southern neighbours. They could call on the stories of many of women, uh, Scottish women, in support of that. There are also issues of personal identity uh, raised by the fact that married women's rights for most of history become subsumed into the legal identity and status of their husbands. And this is true in Scotland as elsewhere, although before the 18th century, the practice was for most married women to retain their family name. The change in practice has led to some practical problems with which all the other editors will be familiar. Under what name do you put a woman's entry, her birth name, uh, her married name, her second married name? Uh, for Gallic women, it's even more problematic because they have patronymics, and Turlow will probably sympathize with this. Um, we were predisposed to wanting to put women uh, under their birth name, even though that's their father's name, um, rather than as spouses. But in the end, we decided that that was imposing our standards on them, and our choice has been to use the surname by which the woman was most commonly known, but to indicate the other names immediately after that. Uh, looking at the other biographical dictionaries, I've seen a range of practices, and in fact, the Canadian one, um, which has some entries that we have, actually has the women under their maiden name while we have them under her married name. Women's biographical dictionaries also raise the issue of what it's meant to be a woman in a society in the past and how that's changed over time. Uh, all biographical dictionaries reflect changes in society and time, of course, but the rapidly changing and still, I would argue, altering position of women perhaps makes these changes even more visible. Um, issues of sexual orientation, changes in sexual mores, such as gay marriage, a live issue right here, uh, LGBT rights, uh, increasingly gender binaries are actually being uh, questioned and old categories broken down. And in fact, one of the people that we will be including in the new edition was identified at birth as a girl, but had the birth certificate altered later on in order to indicate that the sex was male. So we've included that person. Um, interesting to see how binary searches, male, female, uh, deal with such issues. Finally, in terms of creating biographies of nations, Scotland is in a somewhat unusual position, partly due to its position as a nation within the UK. A Scottish biographical dictionary was produced in the mid-1990s, but there's been no attempt to update this or to produce a new one. And this is probably because the ODNB exists and it um, includes the latest in Scottish biographical research. But if, Scottish, or if biographical dictionaries really are biographies of nations, as this conference is about, it could be argued that Scotland should have its own biographical dictionary, as does Wales. 
At the moment, uh, the only Scottish biographical dictionary freely available online, which has been digitized by the National Library of Scotland, and it's just really as a digitized form, is uh, Robert Chambers' biographical dictionary of eminent Scotsmen from 1875. Uh, this is described as having biographies and engraved portraits of Scots men and some women. There are 14. Uh, in a 2002 list of the top 100 Scots, three were women. And the Book of Famous Scots uh, in 1995 had no women at all. The author was aware of the issue, but he explained, quote, that there's no women in our list because Scottish education was entirely concentrated on male children, uh, which is in entirely inaccurate. Now, modern scholarly biographical dictionaries are working hard to increase the coverage of women. Uh, entries on women make up, I think, about 11% of the ODNB, 10% uh, of the Dictionary of Irish Biography, 18% of American. Uh, New Zealand is high at 22%. I'm, as a Canadian, I hate to say that the Dictionary of Canadian Biography is 6%. So about maybe sort of 10 to 15% in current national biographies. So in the light of Brexit, I thought this raises a rather interesting question and an interesting possibility. If Scotland were to decide to leave the Union and to become independent in uh, 2018, just about the time that we're due to publish, um, it's led, the three major political parties are all led by women. It's likely that uh, we would have Prime Minister Nicola Sturgeon, uh, who's already been mentioned. What about if the Scottish government was actually to take the new biographical dictionary of Scottish women and put it online as a national dictionary? If you look at those figures for the percentage of women included, we've got 1,100 women, so really we'd only need to add 120 men. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, I can see we have a lot of challenges in front of us here. Uh, and what's remarkable to me is that we have um, representatives from three very distinct uh, biographical enterprises, yet a series of common problems have emerged, uh, whether it's the question of diversity, identity, um, certainly naming, which I find quite fascinating, and, of course, the real, pardon the cliche, elephant in the room, funding. Funding. And I hope now we'll open the discussion up to the audience and entertain questions. Um, please. Yes. Hello, thank you. Really fantastic papers and insights into your work. Um, I would be really... Uh, I'm Kerry Kilner. I'm the director of Austlit, which is uh, National Bibliography and Biography, I guess. Um, I'm interested in um, your thoughts about the push to open access and, and, um, and given Ira's comment there about funding. Um, how do you get um, encouragement, say, in... Um, in inverted commas, to move to an open access model in order to make it available more widely? I think we can all speak to that. It, that is the huge issue that is going to have to be worked out in the future because one model is open access and one model is behind a paywall. And especially if we're thinking of starting to aggregate some of these national biographical dictionaries, you, you can't have both of those things. Um, I, I think the world is moving towards open access and it's something that, that I support and I think a lot of the funders 
are really pushing for it. Uh, how that actually will play out, um, I, don't, I don't really know. Uh, but it seems to me that's the, the direction it's going. Sure. In our experience, we are uh, a good area where we are, and we are going to try and get around certain restrictions by developing databases similar to Google Australia, particularly because mm -hmm. I think the data that this dictionary is drawn from that becomes a published product is actually more valuable in the wider sense of those who didn't get it in, those who may get in, and, and, and working with communities who can contribute to that data, especially bibliographers and the data experts. I'm fascinated personally how library authority files are so similar to what we do in terms of identifying people and collecting information. Um, and some of the European projects, especially in British Library, that do those things I think that can be a really great way of pushing out towards the, the scholarly and specialist communities as well as getting published. But it, it actually costs money and how you fund it is, is, is in the NCD space and do an amazing job and tricky in and of itself. At a point, and it's gone. It's gone. Um, we really would like to be uh, open access. I actually, um, oh. I'm part of the editorial board of an open access journal, so I, I'm very committed to that. Um, but we need to get the funding somewhere, and um, at the moment, it, the only way we're funded really is working with a commercial publisher. So, um, but I think um, I remember what my point was. Uh, we do have a database, so we think that possibly this way of doing other online projects connected to the dictionary might be a way forward for that. Uh, yes, we're in the back. Uh, my name's Chris Kinneen. I've been lucky enough to contribute to, to both the ODNB and the ADB, and it's um, I prompted this question about you th your three projects and, and others as well. I wonder to what extent authorship is more transnational than it was. Um, I wonder whether you have authors from other places. Uh, obviously, the Canadian, uh, uh, I'll be interested in the, in the quantities of uh, people from those countries, but as well as the, I'd be interested in whether the Irish and the American have any authors other than, than Irish or American. Shall I start? Or? Uh, we actually have authors from around the world. Um, one of the funny things about Scottish women's history is that actually, as a discipline, um, there are a lot of the researchers are actually in Canada uh, or outside Scotland, partly because there's not really much in the way of academic jobs for Scottish historians. So, um, and obviously we wouldn't be able to do that without the web and, and the internet, but we, we do, we try to get our experts wherever we can find them. Ira, didn't you contribute to the A and B? I did. Yes, <laughs> proves my point about how transnational we are. <laughs> <laughs> I did indeed. Uh, yes, way in the back. Uh, Chris Wallace from A and U. Just regarding diversity, given the the funding challenges that are perpetual and the slowness of revising dictionaries, is there a case for thinking laterally and setting up links between? Uh, perhaps complementary material. So for example, in the case of A and B, if you went online and did an A and B search of a woman that wasn't in A and B but was in Notable, 
that A and B would direct the, the search party to the notable listing in the absence of having revised their dictionary uh, fast enough to deal with such an inquiry? Very I think interesting question. I, it yeah. is an interesting question, and it, it, it presupposes probably more cooperation among these projects than than is, is likely to happen. In some ways, that same process happens, I think, by Googling. You see it if it's not in Wikipedia or it's not in the A and B, or when you go there in the search, but you find that there's a link to Notable, then that's where you end up going. So it's the people doing the work rather than the sources. And that would be persuasive, I would think, with institutions or publications that weren't that interested in cooperating because while it would work with a Google search, it wouldn't work if you're on the ANB site or the, the ADB site, for example. So since it all already happens effectively through Google, hard to see a, a concrete argument for not having informal linkages directly between uh, online publications. Um, I, I think it would be an excellent idea if, if we do have more cooperation, um, if we, where we know that the subject is in another dictionary that we indicate. Um, the problem is the subscription paywall. Yeah. So um, we could say, say we were online, we could say that something's in the ODNB, which, um, but that requires somebody to have access to the ODNB. That, but I, I still think it's valuable because the serious researcher will then go and try and find access to it. So I, I think we could cooperate. And also, the other, the other interesting thing is I've just been looking at some entries that are covered in Australia and covered in Ireland. And, of course, we have different perspectives on them. And, and that raises really interesting issues about transnational history. So. I, mean, I think it's fascinating to think about this because it's a live issue in terms of semantic web, linked data, persistent identifiers. Other organizations and, and domain areas manage it in different ways. Often a way to do it is through a national institution and you tie everything together, which has been done in various countries. How do you do it internationally between inc an incredible range of projects in terms of funding, structure, copyright, access? It's problematic. The other side of the coin is general users, you know, how much do you need to hold people's hand to go down through Google searches? I mean, um, it's, it's a terrible tension, but you know, I'm the kind of person who goes down 10 pages when I'm doing my own research and try different browsers and all. You know, you've got you to gotta play with the algorithm. It's not neutral. But the other side of the coin is making it easy for people to find things. We should all do that. It's the question how and why and where. You know, it's tricky. It's, if the UN could take it on, it would be great. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> now I there I is a suggestion. I think um, also an, another part of this really comes, it comes down to funding and staffing. And we are all faced in our projects with limited resources and we are constantly juggling what can we do, what is going to maximize our getting our product out there. And I think if we thought that that would really get our numbers up, then we would go there. But sitting in the audience today, I've just been writing down, oh, I'd love to do this, I'd love to do this. And I think, well, who, who is gonna actually going to do this? Uh, and so, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we would be able to do so much more in terms of linkage. But... I'm afraid, I, I think I speak for anyone who's really involved in these dictionaries, we, we are making hard choices every day. Um, and in some ways it's very frustrating because we could do so much more. Uh, and you broke my heart when you said you were doing this new project for $3,000. <laughs> mean. They're very important dollars, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another remark or a question? from the audience? Yes. The, uh, the instruction dictionary probably um, is limited 
the, uh, the Australian Dictionary of Biography is limited by word length. You know, the volume, no matter whether it's online, I suppose, or in hard copy, can't you know, go on forever and ever. But um, one of the, the problems with it is the very short list of references. As an author, you're permitted only to have about five references, and some of them are fairly uh, difficult for anyone to else to follow, such as private papers, well, where, you know, and who. Whereas Wikipedia, if I may say, um, their references are longer, much longer, and if you're lucky, you can click on one and it'll take you straight to the web page. And this is where I feel sorry um, for Elizabeth that you won't be able to do that in a, in a hard copy. Anyway, to get to the point, what I think is that all authors, given the ideal world, should be asked to footnote all their essays. Uh, those footnotes uh, could be attached to the digitised sources. Even in the archives here, you could give a footnote to, a, to an archival source. We are asked to footnote our uh, entries, but the footnotes are taken off and just the very short bibliography left. So that the question is, do you think um, your authors could provide more information on their sources? Um, we, we have that same problem that we, because of word lengths, we can only have a few. Um, I, I, I'd love to put a bit of the paper out because of shortness of time, but I, um, one of the things that I think that we might be able to do is to go partly online, and we've talked to the publisher about this. So, for example, we might uh, we have a thematic index. We might provide that online so that people know that this material is in, in the um, dictionary. And I actually have a website that I run called WISH, which is Women in Scottish History. Um, we might link to that. Um, it's a way of bringing publicity to the dictionary, but it's also a way of making resources available to people that do want to research these women. And um, it would be might be possible to you know have a more detailed bibliograph bibliographical section. So that, that would be a really good idea, actually. We don't footnote per se, but we use brackets for kind of attribution and quotation. Bibliographies, we're given an open end in the sense of what we've used or what our authors use, we put in. Now there's a tension there with medieval and ancient subjects that the bibliographies are longer than the, the entries because of you know, necessity and, 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 and you need to source things properly. Um, I have a personal view, which is we can pander too much in the sense of linking everything. We can spend all our time linking. You know, before the internet emerged, I think there was scholarship and people used to read things and then go and look them up and find them and the world hasn't ended and you know, there's a tension there between enabling everything and finding things and, and also just getting on with the scholarship. But I'm also very keen to do it where practicable and reasonable within resource constraints. So um, I, I kind of see two of the many sides to it. But one of the, the great problems with the Dib, and I think you, many of you will face it, when people have died more recently, personal information is often actually in integral to the, to the entry. And the editors have to trust themselves to assess that, and then it's unattributable. So it's a way around that, because often, either to specialization or whatever, the best people to write on them knew them or knew them professionally, and they use that. So it's, it's, it's sensitive and, and, and problematic. But if the objective is to get the best research out there in the best way possible, I think it's, it's justifiable. You know? I'm not sure I share your um, your thinking that Wikipedia does a good good job on, on listing sources. Oh. 
because that's one of the ways I pitch the A and B when people say, well, why should I look at that? And we have a paragraph that describes where the sources are, and I think we do it much better than Wikipedia, or in Wikipedia, sometimes you get a good source, you know, further reference. We always give you a good one, and that's very much part of our job. Just we have time. In, sorry, we deliberately tried not to do that only because it was a, you could, for certain people, you could have, you know, full entries just on, on section career. So it was a bibliography for the entry was, was kind of the way we looked at it, which is problematic in itself. We have time for one more question from the audience. We do not have time for one more question. When um, will it end? <laughs> when will the session end? <laughs> Thank you. I want to, first of all, um, remind everyone that we will reconvene tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock here uh, for the first session tomorrow, which is entitled Building on the Past, Looking to the Future. Would you please join me in thanking a very rich discussion with Susan Turlow and Elizabeth. Thank you.